0: What happens when a skilled emergency physician is also a gifted writer and poet who can explore the depths of medicine with meaning and grace? Let's dive deep with physician author Frank Heiler right here on episode 301 of the Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. In these days of the COVID-19 pandemic, I'm still bringing you my monthly pandemic updates at the end of each month. Meanwhile, this podcast continues to be all about you your personal and professional development, your nursing and healthcare career, and the healthcare system as a whole. And I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, medicine, entrepreneurship, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride whether you're new to the show or you've been on this journey with me for months, or perhaps even years. Here we are at episode 301. Thanks for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. And did you know that Nurse Keith coaching is your destination for all things related to your healthcare and nursing career? That's right. I offer individualized holistic coaching for healthcare professionals around the world. And if you mention the show, you can get 10% off your first coaching package. So shoot me an email at keith at nursekeith.com to schedule a chat. The show notes for this episode, which you're going to want to check out to To learn more about Dr. Frank Heiler, we'll be at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 301. And today, as I mentioned, we're joined by new friend of the pod, physician author, Dr. Frank Heiler, who happens to be right down the road in Albuquerque, New Mexico, about an hour away. And Frank, we're going to get to your stellar bio in due course. But the first question I really want to dive into is... What does it mean to you, you know, in your heart, being a physician who's also a writer and poet, and your ability to synthesize that gift with the gift that you have of also being a healer? Well, that is a big
1: question. Thank you, thank you for having me. You start, yeah, you start off with the big ones. Um, I think for for me, what's what's uh, what drew me to medicine in the first place, and I think. Continues to to um, engage me with it is is more the human stories and less and less of the uh, less of the technical aspects of of, um, of medicine in general. I mean, there's a lot to be said about the technical side, um, and most people when they do speak about medicine or the events in medicine uh, reflexively, and particularly, I think this is true among physicians, um, tend to step back into the the cerebral voice, mm-hmm. sort of the analytical side and yet the experience of actually practicing both as a doctor as a nurse as anybody in healthcare, or as a patient ultimately are more uh are more emotional than we than we typically recognize um and that the events and stories that we see and participate in are profound and they're profound in a human way um and i think i was always drawn to that side of of um of the, the, of the endeavor. Um, which is not to say that I think there's a big, oftentimes people will say, well, seem to conflate that with being touchy feely, you know, that, um, that, that the humanities are somehow weaker sisters to the sciences. And, and I think that that's a fundamental mistake. And I, and and in many ways, trying to look directly at, at the events that we're part of and that are really the human story is uh, is more rigorous than retreating into a um, detached cerebral voice uh, in the way that so often healthcare issues are are uh, discussed in the country.
0: Mm, right, because we can read medical journals, we can read the literature, research, you know, all the evidence base that's coming out and being updated all the time, and that's wonderful. And especially right now during the pandemic, when we're facing this incredible existential crisis, layered on top of the opioid epidemic and gun violence and everything that you see in the emergency room in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which we know can be a troubled and beautiful city, you see so much. And this book, I was just telling you (laughs) before we started recording, this book, White Hot Light, 25 Years in Emergency Medicine that came out, it's this year, right? It's 2020?
1: It it came out in September, yeah.
0: September, right. And Mm -hmm. I heard your interview at, well, online, actually, through a wonderful bookstore in Albuquerque with Danielle Ofri, who she's also been on my podcast here this year. And it was an incredible conversation about what I was telling you prior to recording is an absolutely stellar, breathtaking, compelling book. And it's one of my very, very favorite books. I've ever read by a physician or a nurse reflecting on the practice of medicine through the eyes of through the eyes of well an emotional lens a heart-based lens and seeing people for who they truly are and I feel like that's part of what you're doing here and I want to point out that in this book for listeners who are interested in reading which I would recommend anyone listening read it is that you also tell stories from your life, especially your childhood. You tell stories—this beautiful story of being a—I um, think you were a teenager in Japan, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah,
0: that incredible story about your teacher and how you went to the soccer match, you know, on the train, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. how you read his obituary years later, and the way that you tie together your views of humanity through. Your life and your childhood, and then bring it forward into you sitting in an emergency room speaking with a dying person, is i can 't even express how profound that 's been for me reading this book well, well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, I, my great pleasure honestly um,
1: I think that uh, I approached this 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 book was in, in some ways a sequel um, to my first book, which was about twenty years ago now. And um, for me, I think medicine it is in some ways a vehicle um, rather than an end in and of itself, in terms of writing at least. Uh, I, I tried to approach this in, in, a, in a way, that in, a, in a similar way to, to how a novelist might approach this. I mean, you're, where you're mm-hmm. asking questions that, that go beyond the confines of any particular um, discipline. And so, Absolutely. one of my biggest intentions for this book was to, yes, it's it's about medicine, and yes, it's um, set in the medical world, but really that it's about uh, life more generally, that it's about mm-hmm. the sort of the struggles that we all have, regardless uh, as we as we pass through, um, and that me- medicine often illuminates those in very stark ways and very uh, and very um, dramatic ways. But nonetheless, those those events are always there with us, regardless of, of where we are. And so, th- th- this was sort of um, very very deliberately intended to be about larger things than just medicine. And I'm very glad to hear you say that that that, that um, to get the sense that you that you you know see that because that's to me what what I, uh, what I wanted to do above all.
0: Well, you absolutely did. And there, there are so many passages in here. I showed you on video how dog-eared and written up this book is and underlined and circled and asterisked. You know, there's just little passages like, he looked up at me with a kind of dismal relief. He thanked me for my efforts. He declined my offer of a priest. He was composed. I was the one who was shaking. I asked if he wanted to see his son and he shook his head. Because he was done at last and he had understood the truth for a long time. So, these beautiful moments that you point out of you as a physician really seeing people I mean, truly seeing them and you're not seeing them as a diagnosis, you're seeing them as a human being with frailties and losses and hopes and despair. And since it's a book and since you're an author, and we're here recording. Would you please do us the the favor and give us the privilege of you reading a passage? That would be such a gift to have a recording of you reading a short passage from the book. Though I'd actually like you to read the whole thing, but that would take way too long, and it would it would um, take up too many hours here.
1: I could I could read a, a, a section from. The mirror, the story, the oh, mirror. Yes.
0: Okay. Yeah, go for it.
1: Which is, the, I think, the penultimate story in the book. Okay. Suturing a wound can be a meditation. Suturing a wound can be beautiful. There's a rhythm to it, especially with a big wound. You ease the point of the needle in. The needle is curved. You roll your wrist, then look for the rising dimple in the skin on the other side. You snap your wrist a little then, and the bright point leaps out. You release the needle driver and grab that point. You roll your wrist again and follow the curve as you pull the needle free, trailing its blue filament. You tie the knot. You cut the thread. You pick up the needle again. Blood rises in little points. When you are careful, you pull the threads together before you tie the knot. The edges of the skin converge. You study the position and decide. Sometimes you've gone too deep or not deep enough. Sometimes you're too close to the edge of the wound on the one side and too far on the other. So you don't tie the knot. You pull the thread free and start again. It takes longer. You're looking for order, for an exact and stately progression. You want the wound to come together gently. You want the edges to rise against each other just a little. You can't tie the knots too tight, but they must be tight enough.
0: Mm. that's beautiful and i i believe in that story towards the end i think you have a conversation with her that's mm-hmm. right yeah and she asks for a mirror to look at the to look at the suturing and
1: i could read the whole story but it's 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 short but i don't know how long it would you know it's up to you
0: yeah no, but that's, that's, a nice, um, that's a nice beginning. And I wanted to ask you to read another passage, if you will. Um, on page 53, if you could read just the first um, two sections of the motorcycle, I would love, for, starting with He Kept Nodding Off, um, with I've Seen Him a Thousand Times. I would love for you to read that section.
1: Of course. He Kept Nodding Off. We pulled a curtain and watched them closely because they die so gently. They lie so still and turn so blue as their hearts keep beating. The hearts beat all the oxygen out of their blood, and blood without oxygen is blue. Most deaths are pale. When your heart stops, you don't turn blue. You turn blue in hangings for the same reason. The heart beats on without oxygen for a while. Drowning will turn you blue. So will some poisons, like cyanide. But those are painful ways, terrifying ways. Heroin is not terrifying. Heroin is a soft, warm night where no one cries out and no one is afraid. Do you want Narcan? The nurse asked. I looked at him. He was still breathing. The numbers were okay on the screen. No, let's just watch him, I said. But it was close. He was on the edge. Narcan wakes you up in seconds It's brutal, like childbirth Bang, you're there, shivering and gasping under the lights We save more people with it than any other drug When you see someone dying of an opioid overdose And you give them a few drops of a clear liquid And they stop dying, it makes you think It makes you think about the nature of consciousness It makes you think about free will and death When they come back, they don't know They don't feel the risk. There was no cold breath. The fear is abstract. What happened, they ask. Where am I? So you explain. You tell them where they were found. You tell them it was only a few minutes between this conversation and the grave. You don't use those words. I think he needs it, the nurse said a while later. I've been watching him also, where he lay, head propped up on the pillows, a little silvery string of oxygen beneath his nose. Okay, I replied. Point four? Sure. So she went to get it, and I waited for her, and we walked to the cube together. We stood there for a moment, and she was right. He wasn't breathing well enough. He was young and worn out. I've seen
0: him a thousand times. Hmm. I can only imagine an emergency physician or nurse out there listening right now nodding their head or shaking their head either one <laughs> yeah. because they've seen this a thousand times and they've had this experience a thousand times and here in northern new mexico you've lived here much longer than i have i've been here 10 years you've been here quite quite a few more
1: quite a few more yes quite so a I few have. more
0: yeah yeah and we have a well I don't think we have a distinct problem here, but there's there's some interesting dynamics, I believe, happening here culturally. So what can you tell me about the opioid crisis and how it impacts your work in the ER, especially here in New Mexico, if you have anything you want to say specifically about our communities here, or if you want to kind of look at it in the, the larger context?
1: Right. Um, well, the history of heroin... In New Mexico is fascinating, and it goes back a long, day, a long time, and, and it has become um, incorporated in uh, in unusual ways in, in New Mexico culture. And there's a there's a there's been heroin here for for so many years, and so much um, going back so much farther than the opioid crisis. And so they're almost almost two distinct things: um, the tradition of heroin in in this region. Um, and then the opioid crisis, what we've come to n- describe as the opioid crisis, which also has been going on for a long time, but, but became uh, enormously um, cynical, cynically sort of exacerbated by, by the pharmaceutical industry in the late 90s, um, where uh, Purdue Pharma in particular, but multiple other companies as well, deliberately marketed um, opioids, oral opioids under with false um, false data suggesting that it could be used safely with chronic pain then did enormously cynical targeted marketing to physicians uh, who were known to over prescribe opioids this is a this is a huge subject we can talk more about that but uh, at the same time the institute of medicine uh, roughly that at that same time uh, issued a statement saying that that pain was a vital sign so For those who listen, maybe you've been asked the question, what's your your pain on a zero to 10 scale?
0: Exactly. The fifth vital sign.
1: The fifth vital sign, right. Mm -hmm. And so that combination of the fifth vital sign, the increased well-intentioned initially attention being paid to to pain that people were suffering in hospitals fit in absolutely perfectly with these new sort of customer service-based models of care. And also enabled, allowed the pharmaceutical industry to market um, uh, uh, opioids within this context. So basically, this is how we're addressing pain, and that um, we need to address pain. Pain is an extremely important, which of course it is in this, in this, in the short term. Sure. And so they just they just drove right through that opportunity. in the the most cynical and uh, criminal way. Uh And and the result was that not only was uh, opioid prescriptions encouraged and prescribed in far greater numbers than they had been before, but the whole category of chronic pain um, was expanded and used essentially uh, as a means of getting very large numbers of people Addicted to opioids that they then could not get off. So if you if you're a, if you're marketing um, a product that has great uh, physical addictive properties, you have a customer um, base that that always keeps coming back. And so the whole concept of chronic pain was subverted uh, in many ways um, to the marketplace in the, in the most. Um, really chilling of of, of ways. Um, it's hard. It's hard to overstate that. Yeah. It's hard to overstate, um, and the distinct to the point where the distinctions between those who did these these made these sort of decisions, um, and something like the the, uh, the cartels
0: is is uh, very hard to very hard to tease out. Absolutely. And if I may, you know, so now, after all this overprescribing for so many years and. We're finally trying to figure out how to wrap our heads around this and push back. So, now if you're a nurse practitioner or a physician or another provider and you're maybe trying to ramp people down, perhaps let's say to 90 MMEs per day rather than however yeah. many they were taking before, 180, 200, and trying to get them in a Suboxone program, you know, medication assisted treatment, Matt. And then here in New Mexico, especially, because that's what you and I know more than anywhere else right now, we have this widely available inexpensive heroin. We've got fentanyl flooding the market. It's, you know, we have, you mentioned the cartels, we have drugs running from Albuquerque up to Taos, you know, up Route 285. So, you know, how do we, how do we navigate when we're trying to force people into this this model of, let's say, MAT medication assisted treatment, when they can just go out and they can sell their Suboxone and they can pick up whatever else it is that they want on the street, and where where do we go with this with this particular uh, calculus that we're stuck with?
1: Well, it's absolutely true. I mean, uh, street street opioids, heroin, fentanyl, these sorts of things have never been more plentiful. I mm-hmm. mean, they're enormously easy to get. So. The so-called war on drugs, I mean, has, has accomplished, as, as best you can tell, very little. I mean, the this, the street supplies of opioids are uh, are are just um, they're everywhere. The oral forms, Oxy, OxyContin and others, acted as a perfect little gateway to get to getting um, people addicted to oral forms and then transitioning, what particularly if they were if they ran out of their prescriptions to to uh, fentanyl to. Uh, to heroin, uh, to black tar heroin, um, it's a very significant percentage of people who are IV, um, IV heroin users, started um, through uh, being exposed to oral forms. Absolutely. So it was a, it was a, it just sort of ushered them into into that world, mm-hmm. uh, with uh, with with terribly tragic um, consequences. And there's another thing I'd like like to say, which is that. Uh, medicine is, in general has moved um, toward a sort of customer service based model in many ways uh, give, the, give the customer the, i.e. the patient what they want patient satisfaction scores for, for nurses and physicians for example are used um, complaints are taken seriously if a, if a patient complains again about the care that they, that they believe they received or lack of care that they believe they received from either nurses or physicians and so this created a perfect storm, where physicians were and nurses and nurse practitioners were afraid. It's much easier to just write the prescription for the opioid and not um, and get the patient out of the office happy, than than to have the sort of confrontation that, that are inevitable when you have people who really really want something, um, and you're saying no. Mm-hmm. So so all of all all told, this was a sort of a synthetic. Moment of mi- of multiple different forces, um, sort of converging at the same time, which pr- which produced the opioid epidemic, or at least added fuel to the fire, and caused enormous numbers of people to die. Now we've in the midst of the COVID pandemic, we're, we're sort of forgetting about this. Um, it's kind of re- it's receded in in part to to uh, uh, I think in the public consciousness. Um, there are class action lawsuits ongoing now that um looks like uh, at least to the casual eye that that many of the perpetrators are going to walk from the, um they're going to have fines and so on but maybe not uh the kinds of consequences um that they should and there's other ominous things as well which is that uh corporate internationally some of these same models that were used so successfully in the united states in terms of generating revenue and opioid prescriptions are being applied to other countries, um, like Brazil, for example, or India, mm-hmm. um, using the same strategies. And they, those countries often have fewer regulatory safeguards. And uh, as far as I know, that is, that is c- continuing. And, and it's an, an appalling abuse. Uh, and not enough attention has been paid
0: to it. Well, doesn't the United States export so many wonderful things around the world, don't we? Um, You know, we're going to take a break in a second, but you're working in the ER in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and you mentioned black tar heroin. We we mentioned fentanyl. We mentioned Narcan in your story, which lots of folks out there are going to be saying, "Mm mm-hmm, heard this story before. So you're caught in this space of you're trying to save people in those moments where they've made bad decisions because they've been, they've been led down this road by whatever whatever mechanisms have brought them there overprescribing or maybe a history of addiction in the family or the community where they've grown up whatever it happens to be um, and chronic pain's real lots of people live with pain i do myself sure. and yeah. so here you are as an er physician caught in this space of having to patch this situation up person by person by person. And it sounds like the story you just read us, that little clip of that story, is just a drop in the bucket of what you've seen over the last 25 years, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. It's a scourge and it, <laughs> it ruins people's lives. Um, I mean, it, it truly does. And And uh, I think we all sort of can acknowledge that and generates um, a great amount of suffering and lots of other social problems like crime, um, where people are desperate and they steal stuff because they need to, because they're addicted. Um, Mm -hmm. So, again, I think that it hasn't gotten the attention and uh, certainly the retribution uh, that it should um, as a society. But right now we are also in the midst of of dealing with this um, with this terrible pandemic, so yeah. a lot of a lot of our more our, our ambient social problems are receding into the background um, as a result.
0: Well said. Well, we're going to take a really quick break, and when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about your work in Albuquerque and being an emergency medical physician, working in a teaching hospital in that milieu. And also I want to touch on gun violence, immigration, some of the other aspects of your work that I'm sure you have something to say about. So we'll be right back for the second half of episode 301. So now we're going to take a pause for the cause for just a moment. Please consider becoming a patron of The Nurse Keith Show, just like other awesome listeners who value the show so much that they want to give just a little bit each month to support the work we're doing here. When you pledge, you not only get the satisfaction of helping produce and support The Nurse Keith Show, you also get some pretty cool premiums and gifts from yours truly. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash nursekeith to read all about it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash nursekeith. And if you know someone who could benefit from career coaching with me, please consider referring them. And if they become a paying client, you'll receive credit for an hour of coaching with me. And there's no expiration date on that credit, so you can keep it in your back pocket until you need it most. And remember that you can refer as many people as you like and continue to earn those coaching credits. What an incredible deal. And please head over to nursekeith.com and sign up for my newsletter, which comes out regularly and brings you supportive messages, updates from my blog and my podcast, resources, and all sorts of other stuff. Remember, nursekeith.com, sign up for that newsletter, and you'll also get a free download from me as my gift to you. Anyway, those are my sincere asks today. So now, Let's dig back into today's topic without further ado. All right, so welcome back to the second half of the Nurse Keith Show, episode 301. We are here with new friend of the pod, Dr. Frank Heiler in Albuquerque, New Mexico, talking about, gosh, the opioid epidemic, his beautiful new book, White Hot Light, 25 Years in Emergency Medicine, which I cannot recommend enough, and you can order it. Right from Amazon, if you click on the link in the show notes at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 301. So, Frank, we were talking about the opioid epidemic. We mentioned so many things fentanyl, Narcan, black tar heroin. And here in New Mexico, we are close to the border with Mexico. Mm -hmm. So, there's a fairly free flow of drugs from Mexico up into this region, as far as I can tell and what I've read and heard. So, in albuquerque which has a fairly high crime rate i i think based on you know data from around the country you see gunshots you see knife wounds you see the the effects of violence and i'm sure some of that is drug related and crime related so aside from <laughs> aside from overdoses, which I'm sure you deal with on a very regular basis, what are the other things you see, and has it changed or gotten worse over these past 25 years?
1: Well, I think that there's always been uh, sort of a dark undercurrent to American life, and uh, it reveals itself, especially in emergency rooms around the country, so... Um, we've there's the the violence in america the the sort of solitude of america the desperation of many in america um the poverty that affects certain groups disproportionately and often that's that sort of element um is uh maybe contextualized in in television and and shows and various media but it's sort of behind the scenes in a way for many americans they don't see really what the what the underbelly, I guess you'd say, of, of, mm-hmm. of the country is like. And in, in, in emergency medicine, you don't have those illusions. You, you do see, and you probably spend even more time than, you, than is, than is uh, reflective of the truth in, in, that, in that sort of world. Um, my perception is anecdotal. Um, I think that the essence of, this, of that environment has not changed so much since I started doing this, this strange kind of job. But um, it does seem to be getting worse, And I think uh, there's probably a lot of reasons for that, the economic um, strain increasingly in America, uh, where you have so many people who just are are making ends meet paycheck to paycheck. And and the way now that the COVID-19 pandemic has um, shed a harsh light on some of these uh, uh, realities and put so much pressure collectively on society where... The, the fact that people don't have jobs the, the the true the true tension between um being able to make to support your family or you know to keep a roof over your head um in a setting of um of collective threat uh is is really revealed the fault lines in this country to an astonishing degree in so many different ways
0: and then in your emergency room when someone's brought in from a gunshot wound a knife wound or some violent crime or an overdose from you name the drug. There's quite a few out there right now on the street. So you're patching this together as the, the tide keeps coming in, let's say out there in the desert and there's really, (laughs) there's no end in sight more or less. Right. So, so here you are as an author, a poet, a physician, And a human being and a father, right? You have, you have children. Mm -hmm. So you're living in this world where we're faced with many, many existential threats. COVID 19, of course, is the one that's on most of our minds, most minutes of most days right now. We're a number of months into it with no end in sight and the flu season just beginning because we're recording this around in just after election day, just not even mid-November, 2020. So (laughs) there's so many different pieces for you as an ER physician to keep in mind. You have residents to train. You've got medical students coming through. You're trying to prepare them for the world that they're going to be stepping into. And I have a friend, Jamie Katuna, who is just on the show, episode 295. She's just starting her, her uh, interviews for emergency medicine residency coming <laughs> up in 2021. And she knows what she's facing. She knows what's out there and she mm-hmm. still really wants to do it. And her mom's a physician and can't talk her out of it. So <laughs> I want to ask you on a personal level, whatever you're willing to divulge, and you do sure. divulge quite a bit in your book. So I, I don't think this is too much of a stretch, but what is the impact on you as a human being? Not just as a physician, but as a person, as a father, as a husband, and as a member of your community, as you watch the tide coming in, and you're just kind of pushing back against it every day. How do you, how do you process this within your own mind and your own heart?
1: Yeah, I well, that's uh, again a very big question, and um, I think you know you normalize work. I mean, we uh, there's. Um, we do, we do the, you, the, to answer your question about how you do all these things, basically you go up, you show up for your shifts, you, and you go through day by day, you know, mm-hmm. you, you see patients. I mean, it's, um, it's nothing so, so extraordinary. Uh, it's like so many other people just going to, going to work, you know, you, you, um, you show up and you work your day and you come home. Now, in terms of the other questions, how do you make sense of all of this? What do you, what kind of lessons do you learn? Um, what kind of conclusions do you come to about your own life, about the world in which you live in? Um, all of those are, I think, very large. And one of the reasons I wrote this book, I mean, I wrote the first the first book I wrote about emergency medicine. I've written some books that are not about medicine.
0: That was The Blood of Strangers, right? The
1: Blood of Strangers, right. And I wrote yeah. that when I was basically just finishing my residency. And so the um, opportunity here at this point was to say, okay, um, I don't want to just spend my life writing about medical stories. Um, but 25 years or 20 years have passed. And, um, you know, have I learned anything? And the first, the first story in the book is, is, is basically poses that question. It's, uh, have you learned anything? Have I, you know, do, what do you learn from seeing this, uh, procession of similar events, many of which are, are tragic, some of which are, are actually redeeming when you, you know, when there's someone who does well, whose life has been saved or what have you. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, do you learn anything from that? Um, and it's almost a, zen, a Zen-like question. You know, it's almost like a Buddhist sort of question. Um, when you contemplate suffering, how do you, uh, how do you navigate that uh, exactly. personally? And how do you navigate that personally? What kind of conclusions do you come from? How do you maintain some sense of, Um, Optimism, feeling that you're working towards something larger than yourself. Um, How do you find meaning in this world, uh, which so many of us want to do in so many different ways? And that's the question that I asked and started with with this book. And when you mentioned earlier about um, um, including some selective elements of memoir that had nothing to do with medicine, uh, story here or there from the past, from childhood. I think that uh, illustrates that because for me, this was an attempt. Ah, uh, to work towards some of those uh, some of those questions, um, I see. To, try, to try to find some sense of answers for myself and then hopefully to convey that um, to to readers.
0: That's really well said. And having read the book very carefully, and I'm going to read it again, <laughs> I think you do contextualize it, bringing in your childhood, bringing in your personal experience and also the ways you've written about your colleagues. You've written about the hospital itself as an entity you've written Mm -hmm. about, you have a story about, I think he was a PA or a a PA. You wrote this beautiful story about this PA who was also a photographer and the way that the nurses chose to honor him after he died and Mm -hmm. how no one actually really knew him very well. And when they did this little, they made a little Uh, exhibition of his photographs and the experience of that. And the story you tell of, I think um, she might've been named Lisa, where this one nurse was leaving the ER and there was, she (laughs) she threw a party. That was a great party with the limousine and everything. It was a really, it was, it was great. It was a beautiful story. And, And then in this chapter called Vertigo, you wrote, a large hospital over time is full to the brim with ghosts. So many come and go, so many students, so many residents, so many patients, so many nurses, so many births and deaths. The transience flows breathtakingly around you. Only the building is the same. The building you remember, only the cafeteria is the same. And you talk about this hallway at UNM, um, which I've, I don't think I've ever seen, this long, long hallway with photographs of all the physicians and nurses who've passed through. And yeah. You're not the be, physicians,
1: just the nurses. Just, and
0: the, oh, and it's, the, yeah. oh, it's the nurses. Yeah. And you you walk down that hallway very often and you talk about walking down that hallway at night in the quiet of the nighttime. And mm-hmm. that that sense of humanity you also bring not just to doctor-patient and nurse-patient relationships, but you also bring it to your relationships with your colleagues. And I think that's a really beautiful way to further contextualize what this is like in humanized medicine. And in terms of, you know, being on the front lines, being a full tenured professor at UNM, having all these residents and medical students coming through, you also have a reputation and a habit, I believe, that you talk about of being able to say the unpopular things and having the freedom to do so. And what does that mean to you to have the freedom to to write what you need to write about what you're experiencing out there, and how important is that to be able to have that that free flow of ideas in your life?
1: Well, I think it. I think it's important for anybody to be able to um, free expression, frankly. Mm-hmm. And and if if you see things that that trouble you or, or don't seem Right or what have you, that you should be able to speak up about that. And, um, one of the, one of the things we've seen around the country, uh, and really around the world in response to COVID-19 is the suppression of information. So the, the Chinese government, for example, in the beginning tried to hide it, uh, tried to, um, did a lot of, of, a lot of, uh, uh, various forms of censorship, um, there was I think that that 's been true around the world um, with how many governments have responded, uh, including our own government, which is um, which was uh, basically um, trying to manage the cdc 's information um, through the through the presidential administration, was um, uh, individual institutions and hospitals around them. The country. For example, you don't know nationally, I'm talking nationally here, um, how many healthcare workers have been infected with COVID-19 on the job. That is information that is hard to come by. Um there are estimates, but but there's uh if, if that's known, we don't know what that is. No. No. We don't know how many we don't know how many patients have been, infected. and these, again, there's a lot of variability in this and, the, and it's difficult to measure, but we don't know many how many patients have caught uh, COVID-19 from going to the hospital. Um, mm-hmm. the, the politicization of basic public health um, measures like masks uh, is, is just a, a level of absurdity that's hard to understand. I mean, that this is a collective threat that should not have a political significance. I mean, COVID nineteen could care less who anyone it infects is, whether they're a Democrat or Republican or whatever ethnic group they Absolutely. are. I Absolutely, mean, it's, it's yeah. um and you know a lot of the disparities we're seeing in 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 infection rates and so on have to do with economics and with uh, jobs and just simple risk factors for exposure, who, mm-hmm. how many other people you're around and what we are living situations like. Um, the way that this has been politicized, the way that as a nat as a nation we've approached this uh, through the prism of uh, bias and irrationality, as opposed to saying, "Look, this is a collective threat. A mask is not any different from a helmet in a- that a soldier might wear in battle." Well said. Um, and what are we doing? You know, it's it's just extraordinary to watch this, and um, dismaying on so many different levels. Mm
0: -hmm. You know, we we fasten our seatbelts, we put on our helmets, we put on our masks, we we make the kids wear knee guards and elbow guards. I mean, these are these are common sense common sense um, ideas, not ideas, but these are this is scientifically-based, evidence-based information we have here. And when we have Dr. Anthony Fauci sidelined, when he's, you know, he's the person we should be listening to. And luckily, Joe Biden is going to be bringing in science, actual science, to look at how we're going to actually address this come 2021. That, That does bring a little bit of optimism here. And, you know, your work is, as you said, a window onto American life. And we've mentioned quite a bit of the, the underbelly, the stuff that's going on out there that you see that many of us don't see, or maybe we see it in a article or a TV show or, you know, we see it on, you know, we watch Breaking Bad or ER or something yeah. and we, we catch right. we catch a glimpse of it, right? So right. and there's there's little bits of truth in a lot of that. You know, art mm-hmm. does imitate life and vice versa. So We've got, boy, you and I could go on for hours, but we have this whole notion of healthcare reform. We have these ideas of Medicare for all and and whatever people have brought out into the conversation. So whew, what do doctors like you feel about this notion of healthcare reform? And what can we do in this allegedly richest, most powerful country in the world with such bad healthcare outcomes? What, how do we attack this particular problem, especially in light of what you see in the ER?
1: Yeah, um, well, I mean, again, this is, that's such an enormous topic. But basically, the problems in American healthcare um, are, are difficult to solve, but not complicated. And the profiteering, it's just the outrageous amounts of profiteering that have occurred really throughout Um. Have have created a situation that, that healthcare is uh, unaffordable for many, and um, uh, the insurance premiums and so on are just out of reach. Um, that the that, that the myth that we tell ourselves that, that 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 we're the wealthiest country in the world does not apply to at least thirty or forty percent, if not more, of our of our of our um, population who cannot come up with very small amounts of money that normally would seem like, you know, a five or six hundred dollars without. Without charging it, is a struggle for many people in this country. Despite exactly. the fact that they work work hard and um, you know follow the rules and so on, mm-hmm. so we've uh, we've created a situation um, of basically a quite predatory corporate models and haven't figured out a way of finding a balance between providing some pot- profit motive but providing some incentive for people to to um, improve care and so on, and at the same time be affordable.
0: Yes, and you just mentioned a couple minutes ago, and we have to close soon, but you just mentioned the people who work really hard and can't afford the five or $600 for whatever it is, their health insurance or whatever bill they have to pay for their health care. They can't afford it. And a lot of those people, most of those people, they're not working at home through Zoom, they're packing our groceries, they're delivering our mail, they're picking up our trash, they're cleaning the hospital rooms, right? Absolutely. So those people out there, they don't have the privilege of sitting at home in their pajamas with a cup of coffee and their cat in their lap telecommuting. They're actually leaving house every the house every day.
1: That's and, right.
0: And they're the ones who come to see you in the ER for possibly the only healthcare they receive on a regular basis. So it must be disconcerting to you to see people coming in to see you for problems that could be handled with primary care, but they actually can't access primary care. How, how frustrating is that?
1: Well, it's, it's enormously frustrating. I mean, the, we often, we talk about, um, one of the, uh, comments about, um, healthcare reform is that we can't ration healthcare, that, that, that any kind of, uh, um, significant health care reform would entail rationing of health care. Uh, we ration health care now and we ration it profoundly. Um, the waiting lists for getting people into a clinic depending on the specialty is months and sometimes even longer, sometimes years yes. to see uh, uh, or more to see a subspecialist like a rheumatologist, for example, at UNM. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not it's not UNM's fault. I mean, UNM is overwhelmed. We're uh, full all the time. And uh, there's just simply not enough capacity to take care of, uh, and this is true throughout the state and also throughout the country. Um, so we are we have been and en- we have been engaging in healthcare ra- rationing for uh, forever, and to pr- pretend that we are not is is disingenuous. The way we've chosen to ration healthcare is around um, how much, basically how much money. The patients have.
0: Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I'm in the the throes right now because it's open enrollment of figuring out what health plan I'm going to choose through the ACA, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. And my particular health plan that I've had the last couple of years is going out of business on December 31st at midnight. So, uh, great. You know, yeah, they're going out of business and they're dropping providers left and right. So I've lost some of my care recently, and you know, I'm looking at you know well over five hundred dollars a month premium, and that's a push for me. And I can't imagine what someone else, not in my circumstance with without my privilege, has to face, and how they end up going to see Frank Heiler in the ER at UNM in Albuquerque because that's what they've got on hand in order to get the care they need when they should be having their blood pressure and diabetes managed on a regular basis. So I want to, go ahead, I'm sorry.
1: No, and that's right. And often often people who are, who are uninsured will get stuck with a huge ER bill. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think UNM does the absolute best it can. I mean, we are a, uh, a an institution that really does try to do the best for the state of New Mexico, but around the country, there are many, many out of network, all kinds of price, price gouges, mm-hmm. uh, kind of sort of tricks um, to gouge people as much as possible for ER visits. Often they're stuck with bills that they can't pay, um, but that they needed to acquire because they were having an emergency of some sort uh, and- And so it's a, it's a terrible, you know, it's a terrible broken system that's cruel to a substantial percentage of the population. Um, that it's, that you, you saddle people with bills that they, that they, uh, that they can't get out from under. And it's, and it's frankly, a decision often that you make when you're making decisions about what kind of tests to order, you think about that a little bit, you know, uh, am I going to order this test because I know this person can't pay for it? And, and when they get the bill, it's going to, you know, it's going to be uh, terrible for them. Or do mm-hmm. I not order the test because um, then am I'm am I giving them a different level of care, which you are. So, I mean, these are the sorts of sort of everyday little ethical decisions that occur to physicians all the time. And most of us say we, we're going to order the test. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't afford not to. No. So you, you ordered the test. And in many ways, that's the right thing. Ah, uh, from a medical point of view, but the social con- consequences of that for the patient um, are are often unacceptable. and these these are the kinds of situations that require sort of national solutions instead of individual choices by by care pro- by providers. And mm-hmm. we have not addressed any of those. I mean, the Obama care, uh, the Affordable Care Act was an attempt in that direction was flawed attempt. I mean it they had to sweeten the pot to get it accepted. So it's expensive. Mm-hmm. So the combination of providing care and an affordable thing is is has bedeviled American healthcare since since um, really since the end of World War II and probably before.
0: Yes, it has. And you know, we'll see what happens over the next four years. So let's just cross our fingers and toes and everything else that something positive can move forward. And some of us might feel a little uh, cynical or pessimistic about that, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. And, you know, as we close, I just, I want to thank you for, for being a physician of heart and, and deep thinking and bringing a lot of humanity to your work, first of all, because it's obvious that you do in your patient interactions and also your work with your colleagues and also writing books that, that truly bring that humanity forward, that Others outside the healthcare realm can also read and glean that, oh, there are people out there. There are physicians and nurses out there who think this way, and they think about me in this way when I come into the ER. So The White Hot Light, 25 Years in Emergency Medicine is an absolutely stunning book, and I'm going to be recommending it to everyone and anyone, and I hope many, many listeners will purchase it. And I was curious. Do you have another book in the works? Are you working on something? Can you divulge?
1: <laughs> I I have not actually. I mean, this was this was. Um, thank you for for saying those things. Sure, I mean, I, I just want to say that you know I, I'm not the touchiest. I'm not the most touchy feely kind of person. I mean, yeah. I I, I want to you know I yeah. I uh, there's a there's a sort of a, a hardness that can come from the humanities too. I mean, yes. it's not you know. I think it's more like seeing um, seeing the patterns in a slightly different way is is more what i would how I would describe it mm-hmm. um, in terms of uh in terms of of the book i no i'm not writing another book yet I'm, we're all sort of in the midst of this uh of this sort of public health catastrophe absolutely <laughs> and it's and it's hard to it's hard to kind of i think for many people to to concentrate and think about other things and and to um um, you know, to, to do creative projects, um, at mm-hmm. least for me now, it's been a challenge. I will I expect I will start again soon.
0: And I, I assume these days we're living through right now, 2020 to 2021 and beyond are going to be fodder for a lot of creative work and a lot of evidence-based work too coming forward in the years to come. And we'll have a link to White Hot Light. We'll have a link to The Blood of Strangers, your essay collection that you said you wrote just after finishing your residency yeah, right? and also mm-hmm. to your novels and your novella. And I really want to just thank you for taking the time to be with us here today and sharing some reading from the book and your reflections on medicine in the 21st century, which is a complicated world and a complicated societal moment we find ourselves in. So Frank, thank you so much. You've, you've really been wonderful and I look forward to having you back. Well,
1: thanks so much. I really, uh, I I really appreciate it.
0: Well, there we have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the nurse Keith show. And remember to head over to nursekeith.com forward slash episode 301 to read all about Frank Heiler and order his books, please. And I hope you feel uplifted and empowered from this episode. And I encourage you to take inspired action every day in the interest of your personal and professional satisfaction and development. And remember, reach out to me for some holistic career coaching if you feel you need support now or anytime in the future. And also at nursekeith.com, you can find job listings from Reload, Incredible Health, Trusted Health, Zip Recruiter, and lots of other great resources like resume templates from my friend Amanda Garnier at The Resume RX. The Nurse Keith Show is a member of R's Longa Media, a collaborative network of podcasts and media entities dedicated to professional education and partner to improve social ills, find them at arslonga.media, that's dot A-R-S-L-O-N-G-A. Media. The Nurse Keith Show is also a proud, privileged member of the Health Podcast Network, along with the podcasts from the New England Journal of Medicine, the Journal of the American Medical Association, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Kevin MD, Penn Nursing, and many other stellar podcasts. It's one of the largest and fastest growing collections of authoritative, high quality podcasts taking on the tough topics in healthcare with empathy, expertise, and a commitment to excellence. Speaking of excellence, The Nurse Keith Show is adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting. Mark Cappy is our stalwart social media ringmaster. Hats off to Rob and Mark. For helping me keep the wheels turning in the right direction be well dig deep seek joy keep in touch this is nurse keith audios till next time from chile santa fe new mexico and new friend of the pod dr frank Heiler, bidding you adieu from albuquerque (laughs) albuquerque new mexico so thank you frank thank you for listening and we will catch everybody on the flip side